we are in the, the midst of a bigger sermon series going through the book of Genesis, and it's called Foundations. And uh, we finished off a few weeks ago uh, looking at the life of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, and then the rest of his life. It took us to Genesis 25, and we met his son Isaac. And we're going to pick up uh, on that storyline uh, in uh, a couple of weeks. But I, I wanted to push pause on that study in Genesis to take a look at this all-important and crucial uh, theme of all of Scripture called the kingdom. It is a word that we hear used a lot in Christian circles. We're bringing in the kingdom. We are doing kingdom work. We are kingdom people, kingdom-minded. And it's really important, if you want to understand all of the Bible, and what God is actually up to in, in every page of Scripture, including today, here and now, to understand this important concept of the kingdom. And so it's just going to be a three-week series. We did last week was an introduction. If you remember, I, I kind of read the Bible story to you, and we looked at that theme of the kingdom through the Bible story from Genesis to Revelation. Today we're going to go a little bit deeper, uh, and we're going to look at the nature, the true nature and purpose of the kingdom. There's going to be a lot of Scripture, and actually I'm encouraging you this morning uh, to take notes. Now, some of you already do that, and we have notebooks that are always available. Um, and some of you write in the margins of your Bibles, or you have your own journal. But this morning is one of those messages. There's going to be a lot of teaching, a lot of Scripture. It's all going to be up on the screen for you as well. Um, but uh, I think it's a great opportunity to take notes. So, real quick, uh, if any of you would like a notebook, um, you just raise your hand and it'll be passed out to you. So a couple of you might want one. Just remember that these notebooks are always available, so bring it with you, stick it in your Bible, you can use it to take your Sunday morning notes, and uh, as you fill it up, the next time you come into church, take another one, because they'll always be available. All right, it's a great opportunity to help keep track of what you're learning at church, because as we learn, grow, and serve together, Sunday morning is an important part of that, right? Um, and so, uh, here we go, we're going to dive right into it. And take a look at what it means that the Bible uses this word kingdom quite often. And it is an important theme, a crucial theme for us to understand if we are to understand what our God is up to. You remember, I mentioned this last time, but the idea of a kingdom and a king who oversees a kingdom is a big part of our culture. It, it, it comes up in, in, um, uh, in literature in film, in uh, important parts of our culture, in history, in every culture, in every nation throughout history, there has been this idea, this understanding of a king and a kingdom. Now, we don't have that as our form of government, but there are many governments that still have that. And if you remember from your time in high school and you were looking at the the Middle Ages or the medieval times, and you learned about kings and kingdoms back um, in in that time period of uh, of Europe. Uh, you know, we think about somebody like the king, the the um, the legend of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. That idea that that there's something that we're all kind of 
connected to and fascinated with this idea of a kingdom and its realm and its people and the king who, uh, who, who rules it all, whether it's good or bad. And if you're a fan of uh, the Lord of the Rings series, the books or the movies, you know there's one of them that, that is called simply the return of the king, right? And, um, and so this idea is not foreign to us but yet it is really important when it comes to studying and understanding the Scriptures. So today, we're going to continue to trace the kingdom through the Bible in a clear and I hope concise view of how God's plan from Genesis to Revelation really is all about the kingdom. If you understand the kingdom, you will understand the Bible. Now that's a big statement. That's a bold statement. But track with me this morning, if you will, and uh, take lots of notes, and uh, you will see how this will develop. Next week, in our third and final installment, before we get back to Genesis, next week is going to be the why. And so last week and this week is more of the what. What is the kingdom? What is it all about? But next week is going to be why, meaning why is it important? Why does it matter? What do, what do Christians in different denominations and in different philosophies of, of looking at Scripture, what do they think about the kingdom and why does it matter? And I will show you next week, but you got to come back for it, I will show you next week why it is so important to understand the nature and purpose of the kingdom in Scripture. So, let's get started. It all starts in the Garden of Eden. And remember, we're going through Genesis and so you remember that some of this early story we have covered in, in greater detail. But God set up His kingdom, right? That He wanted on the earth. It is an earthly kingdom. Now, there are two kinds of kingdom we see in Scripture. Two understandings of kingdom. There is what we call the universal kingdom, which is God being sovereign over all of His creation for all of time, right? And we don't argue that point. God is always sovereign. He is, uh, he is ruler and sovereign over His universal kingdom. But there is also, in Scripture, an important concept of an earthly kingdom, like more of what we can understand and think about, where there is actually a king ruling over a kingdom with subjects, citizens, and borders and, and all of that. And so we see that in the Bible as well. And it's, under, it's important to distinguish between the two. What, what I'm talking about last week, today, and next week is the earthly kingdom. Not the universal kingdom. The earthly, what we call the temporal kingdom. The kingdom that God had established on earth that was lost and that will one day return. Okay, And so it started in the Garden of Eden and God set up His kingdom that He wanted where he put Adam and Eve in charge to be his representatives on earth. Right? Makes sense. Now, Satan, the evil one, God's adversary, subverted that office of what we call, this is sort of a, um, you know, a fancy term, a theocratic administrator. And simply what that means is this. I think we know what an administrator is, somebody that isn't a representative that oversees something, administers something, right, that has responsibility for someone else. You administer something for someone else. 
A, a theocratic administrator or a theocracy is when God rules through a person. Okay? So when God rules through a person, it's a theocracy. Now, back in world history, there were kings who and queens, by the way, that set themselves up saying that they were themselves divine or divinely appointed and tried to set up what we would call a theocracy. But biblically speaking, it is when God has a human representative on earth for him. So God rules over the earth, over his kingdom through a person. That is the kingdom God set up in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were his theocratic administrators. Okay? It was somebody basically who would govern for God. But instead of ruling over the animals as God had given to them dominion over, they listened to the animals. Instead of following God, they followed the animal. Remember what Adam and Eve did with the serpent? See, there's a reason that Satan took the form of an animal, a serpent, a living being. Because Adam and Eve were given um, to be theocratic administrators, governors over God's creation, right, to have dominion. And that included the animals. Remember when Adam named all the animals? That was part of it. So Satan is not a dummy. He takes the form of a serpent and deceives them and they listen to the animals instead of God. That's when that kingdom that God had set up with Adam and Eve governing for him was lost to Satan. And now we see in Scripture God is call, uh, Satan is called the God of this age. Lower Lower G, right? He is the God of this age because of what happened in the garden. So they had, um, in effect, lost control of their dominion over the earth to Satan. So the whole rest of the story of the Bible, and this is important, is how God's authority over the present earth is restored. And that really is um, the next thing that we're looking at is to see that the whole story of the Bible is how God's authority over the present earth is restored. This system of rule, the kingdom, has to come back so God can reassert His authority over what was lost in Eden. From that point on, there are prophecies that are given. Prophecies that are given on how the kingdom is to be restored. Prophecies given from that point on of how the office of theocratic administrator is restored. So, it was lost in the garden. But then, we meet somebody named Abraham. So it happened in the garden, it was lost to Satan. But then God has a plan, right? God has a plan to to eventually bring about that kingdom that was lost. Are you tracking with me so far? And so what happens is, see, I didn't give you a chance to answer. I'm just assuming that. That's okay. We're all together, right? And so it's lost in the garden. So then we meet this man, Abraham. If you remember, we, we take the Old Testament and the first half, we break it up into four main people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, right? So we meet Abraham. God creates a nation through which promises are made to be fulfilled on this earth, through which He will bring this coming kingdom to this world. That's probably the main significance of the Abrahamic covenant. 
that we looked at earlier and the promises that God has to bring his kingdom back to earth because God wins, right? God will always win and his will will always be done. And so if Satan is now called the God of this age, we know that God in the future has to win. And so God will not let it be that there won't be his kingdom existing on earth. So there will be a kingdom coming, but we need to, in order to understand that, we need to see how that kingdom progresses through the scripture. So he calls Abraham, makes a covenant promise with him, and that is then God giving, listen, ownership of the blessings to Abraham and his descendants who become known as the people of Israel and the nation of Israel. And so God is making promises and he's basically saying, I have to bring about this kingdom that was lost and I'm going to do it. It's going to be through people, my theocratic administrators, remember? And so I'm going to do it through a particular people. So he calls Abraham and through him begins the nation of Israel. And God then develops those promises that he's making through the rest of the Old Testament. So he is giving ownership to the blessings to Abraham and his descendants. Then we meet Moses. And that is the Mosaic Covenant. We call that the Covenant of Sinai or the, the Sinai Covenant. Now, unlike the Abrahamic Covenant, and church, this is a really important distinction, the Abrahamic Covenant is unconditional. Do you remember how God put, Abra- uh, put Moses, Abraham to sleep and went through the pieces of the burning sacrifice himself? Because God was saying that he alone was responsible to keep the promises. Remember how important that is? So now he gives a, a covenant to Moses, to the people of Israel through Moses, but this is a conditional covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant is still in place, and those promises must always be kept by God, but that's unconditional. The Mosaic covenant, the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, That is conditional. And what does that mean? It means that God simply says, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. But guess what? If you disobey me, there'll be curses. See, that's conditional, right? It's based on the condition of your obedience or not. And so now um, God uses Moses, right, to be his, uh, his theocratic administrator, his representative, his governor on earth, but to a specific tribe of people, the people of Israel, but for them to be an example to the whole rest of the world. Now the Mosaic Covenant, it's conditional. This kind of gives the possession of the blessing. See, this is important too, church. The Abrahamic Covenant, uh, because it is unconditional and God does it alone, it, it um, it gives ownership of the blessings. And they can never not be owners of it, see? Because God says, you're doing this by my decree and and I alone will make this happen. You have ownership of it forever. However, if you want to possess it like and enjoy it, then you have to be obedient. See, there's a difference. See, you can own something, but not enjoy it. My son, Luke, who is now working in Hawaii, he's got this beautiful motorcycle and it's, it's sitting on our patio, covered up. He owns that motorcycle. The title is in his name, but he is not enjoying it right now. See? So he owns it, 
but he's actually not possessing it because he's not here right now. He's not enjoying it. It's the same thing with the promises through the Mosaic covenant, the blessings. God says, look, you're always going to be owners of this because of what I did through Abraham. But if you want to enjoy me being your, your God, then you have to be obedient. And if you're disobedient, there's going to be curses. See how that's conditional? See how that's different? So we meet Abraham, then we meet Moses. And now through Moses, we see that God is showing them how to possess or enjoy these blessings. So when Israel becomes not only the owner, but then the possessor, that's when the kingdom will come back to earth. And that's why it's an important concept for who we are now and our future. Because church, listen, for the kingdom that was lost in Eden, right? that God then said He will establish on this earth through the nation of Israel, He chose Abraham to be the father of that great nation. And then the whole world will be blessed through them, of course, because of Jesus Christ, right? who is the King. The only way that they as a nation are going to enjoy or actually possess that kingdom, which they have ownership of, but the only way they can enjoy to possess it is if they are obedient. In church, that's, the, that's where Jesus comes in. We're going to continue the story of the Old Testament, but Jesus came and He said, Him and John the Baptist, remember what they said? Repent for what? For the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom is at hand. Because Jesus was saying, I am the promised Messiah. I am the King. This is my kingdom. I have come to bring it. It was promised to you through your father Abraham. Are you willing to receive it? And as a whole, the nation of Israel rejected their King. And He went to the cross. You see? And so the kingdom was not canceled out. God didn't say the heck with that plan. It is what we might call postponed. He has to make that kingdom come to be in fruition, a kingdom here on earth where He has His theocratic administrator, His representative, His governor looking over it. And that day coming in the future, guess who's going to be the king sitting on a throne in a real city with a real kingdom and real citizens? Who's that going to be? It's going to be Jesus. When He returns. Now let's continue. But that's why it's so important that we see and we track this concept of the kingdom all throughout Scripture. Because it is so crucial for us to understand the whole story and how everything fits together. See, when you have the perspective, you have, listen, you have the framework of how the Bible works, it's much easier to understand. Because you can open any page of Scripture and look at the greater context and ask yourself that question. How does this fit into God's plan of restoring the kingdom right so since the mosaic covenant the law ultimately points to jesus remember that the whole point of the law was to teach the people of israel like you can't be righteous and holy on your own you can't keep 613 laws they're trying and they've tried but they can't do it on their own that was the whole point of the law but jesus came to fulfill that law but see as long as the nation of israel does not accept Jesus Christ, then the kingdom cannot yet come back to the earth. It will in the future, 
Because in Romans 11, and we're going to put up that scripture in a second, Paul says in Romans 11, at that time, all Israel will be saved. Now what does he mean by that? I want to read this passage to you. This is important. What I'm going to read to you is from Romans 11, verses 11 to 27. Now we've had different people here in the past that have shared um, a message on these three chapters. Romans 9, 10, and 11, what you need to know in general is that Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11 is where Paul really talks about God's plan with Israel, sort of in, in a summary form. See, in chapter 9, it is Israel in the past elected. How God chose uh, uh, Abraham to be the father of many nations. So chapter 9 of Romans is Israel being elected, chosen by God. Chapter 10 is about how Israel rejected Jesus, so they're currently rejecting Him as a nation. And then chapter 11 is about how in the future they will accept Jesus and therefore will be accepted by God. So it's in the past elected, in the present rejected, in the future accepted. See that? That's Romans 9, 10, and 11. But I want to read to you from that third of those chapters, Romans 11. Here's what it says, and it's why I'm reading it, about that future kingdom and why this concept of the the nation of Israel is important. Because Israel is currently in disbelief under the judgment of God, under the discipline of God, because they rejected Jesus the King. See that? Jesus came and said, the kingdom is at hand. I am your king. I am in your midst. Do you accept it? The kingdom you've all been waiting for. So God can finish His plan, what He started in Eden. And as a whole, they rejected Him. But look at what Paul says in Romans 11. I ask then, has God rejected His people? We're talking about Israel. By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But but what is God's reply to him, Paul says? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee of Baal. So too... At the present time, this is Paul writing this, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. See, we're in that age of grace now, aren't we? Paul was writing during that time. How do we come to accept Jesus? By grace. It is by grace you have been saved through faith and not of your own works. Ephesians, right? So, verse 6, but if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of work. See, Paul, the attorney, is making his case, right? Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Well, So what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, 
down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. In verse 11, Paul continues, so I ask, did they, meaning Israel, did they stumble in order that they might fall? See the distinction? You can stumble but not fall. He's saying, did they stumble so that they would fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. See what Paul's doing, making the case? They rejected Jesus. So he's saying, okay, through their trespass, through the rejection of Jesus, now salvation has come to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And why? For our benefit, but also to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, meaning salvation, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? See, he's not giving up on God's plan for Israel. Verse 13, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Paul's making it clear his heart for his people. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And now he's going to talk about branches. And, and in, in his description, the, the natural branches is Israel. The wild branches are us, the church. A bunch of wild people. See? So we are the wild branches or the grafted in. So Israel is the natural branches. And the, the Gentiles who are saved in Christ are, are the ones grafted in, the wild branches. So he says, so if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. The olive tree is like the church. It's all believers. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are... Remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So, so then you'll say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you. Provided you continue in this kindness, meaning believing in Jesus. And that's how we have salvation, by believing. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Because without believing in Jesus, then you are cut off forever. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut, from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and you are grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, that's the church, 
how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? See what he's saying? He's saying in the future, if God could take Gentiles and graft them into his promises, into the olive tree, Paul's making the case, well, can't God then take the, the natural branch that was cut off because of their, their unbelief and rejection of Christ, can he graft them back in? I mean, they were part of the original olive tree. See, he's making that case in the last couple of verses. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening, partial, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. For as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob meaning Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So there is a coming time, Paul says, when all Israel, will there be a remnant and they will be saved and rescued. In church, that is what we call the future kingdom at the end of the tribulation where God finishes His judgment. And Paul says at that time, that natural branch, that remnant of Israel who has been cut off, those who believe in Jesus at the time of the end of that tribulation, they will be saved and grafted back in. See, if Eden is the original structure for this kingdom, and the Abrahamic covenant is the ownership, and then Mosaic covenant is a possession and enjoyment, right? And we see that someday this kingdom has to return to earth. So, who were these theocratic administrators? We'll quickly go through the rest of this. So, we had Abraham, right? And he was a theocratic administrator, a governor for God. But just for a smaller group of people, not like Adam and Eve, for the whole world. See the difference? But this was just for Israel. But they were to be an example, a light to all the nations. How did they do with that, by the way? How did they do with being a, a, a holy people and being a light to the nations around them. Did they affect the other pagan nations for God? Or did they let them, they let the pagan nations affect them? That's what they did. So we do the same thing, don't we? We want to share the gospel and be a good influence and, and live the, the holy righteous life for God's glory and, and, and for others to bring others in. But isn't it so much easier to go the way of sin? It's so much easier to just kind of go down than it is to go up, right? And that's what happened with Israel. They were supposed to be uh, an example because the leaders of, of the nation of Israel at each time in their history was they were God's like theocratic governor so that Israel could be a light to the nations. But they did fail. Even though they had some good leaders and good governors, they failed. So we had Abraham. We had Moses. Who came after Moses? Joshua. After Joshua... Who were the theocratic administrators? It was the judges. The books of Judges. They were the ones that were governing for God. After the judges, the people said, no, we don't want judges anymore. We want kings. So give us a king. So you had kings. The first king was Saul. After him was David. And then you had David's son, Solomon. Right? The first three kings. Each of them ruled for about 40 years each. But then, with Solomon, there became a divided 
kingdom. So there were God's representatives as theocratic administrators up until the kingdoms were then divided. So the divided kingdom. Because the first three kings saw, and this, this is important biblical history to keep this all together. The first three kings of Israel, Saul, David, Solomon. Remember after Moses, Joshua, the judges, they wanted a king. Okay, Saul, David, Solomon. The first three ruled over a united kingdom. It was all Israel. Okay, it's important. But then what happens is, through Solomon, who wasn't always so wise, the kingdom became divided. See, in that Mosaic covenant that God gave the people of Israel, like how to live, and how to enjoy the blessings, see? How to enjoy the blessings. He said, you have the blessings, you own them, but you want to enjoy them, then be obedient. And that's the Mosaic Covenant. So in Deuteronomy 17, look at what it says about kings. It gives a, a specific description about what kings are to do and not to do under the Mosaic Law. Only he, meaning a king, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So guess what the third king of Israel, Solomon, did? He acquired for himself excessive silver and gold. And he acquired for himself many wives. And they were almost all from other pagan nations. And it says in Scripture, they led his heart away. Just like God said not to do in his law. See? God always knows best, doesn't he? And so, that's what happened with Solomon. And when he started gaining for himself, acquiring for himself all of these many wives, I, I think uh, he had uh, maybe over 200, something like that. Um, it says that, they led him to start worshiping their pagan gods. So they led him astray. They influenced him. He was supposed to lead the people, listen, to be an influence for God, for these nations, but Solomon dropped the ball in a big way. And he allowed all these wives from pagan nations to lead him astray. And he started to worship false gods. In very, in, 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 you read through the books of the Old Testament, you will see especially in the books 1st, 2nd Kings, you will see how graphic in detail it can be about the things that Solomon did and the way that they worshipped false gods. This wasn't just going to some other church down the road. It involved human sacrifice and it involved you know, um, uh, all kinds of things that were um, so um, inappropriate, graphic, and against God's word. That he did in the name of doing everything for himself. So, through Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided. Now, if under the Mosaic Covenant there are blessings for obedience and there's curses for disobedience, what do you think is the worst possible curse for the people of Israel? What's the worst thing that could happen to them that God could allow to happen to them to judge them? It is exile. It is being conquered by a foreign nation. And that's what then happened 
to the divided kingdoms of Israel. So, real quick, you had the north and you had the south. So you had this divided kingdom where you had the northern kingdom, okay, which was ten tribes, and then, and I'll get to that in the south in the, in the south in a second, but you had the northern tribes, the ten tribes, they were called Israel. Their capital was Sumeria. They continued in idolatry under their kings. They had 19 kings, and for all intents and purposes, not one of them was good. Oh, and 19, how's that for a record? They were disciplined because of what God laid out in the Mosaic Covenant. They were taken into exile by the Assyrians. So Assyria was the big empire that day. It was in 722 B.C. You can read about that in 2 Kings 17. See, they didn't listen to their prophets. There were prophets that came calling the people of Israel back to God. But the ten northern tribes did not listen. So they were taken into uh, captivity, exiled by the Assyrians. And even worse, they then scattered. So they were no longer a people of God. They were scattered due to the exile. But in the south, you had the other two tribes. Remember, there's 12 tribes of Israel. So in the south, you had the other two tribes was Judah and Benjamin. And their capital was Jerusalem. You would think, and this happened about a hundred years later. So you would think they would have learned from what happened to their brothers and sisters in the north, right? Wow, they disobeyed and they were taken into exile by the Assyrians. It's about a hundred years later, a couple of generations. You think they would have learned? No. They, they became worse. They had 20 kings. There was maybe eight or so that were good, but they were kind of just okay. But see, the southern kingdoms, they were taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Recognize those names? But they weren't scattered. And that's important. They were in captivity, but not scattered. So they stayed in captivity in Babylon until they were freed and able to go back after the 70 years. Genesis 49.10 gives us a clue of why that is. There is this prophecy about a ruler one day for the kingdom. Remember, that's what we're talking about. Coming from the tribe of Judah, which is one of the two tribes in the southern kingdom. It says that in uh, Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So one day that will happen, and it's going to come through the tribe of Judah. So God allows them into exile and judgment, but they don't scatter. So, after the the southern tribes are taken into captivity by Babylon, remember the northern tribes by Assyria, but a hundred years later, the southern tribes uh, by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. After that point, no more theocratic administrator. No more governor on earth for God. See that? It's gone. Again, it existed in Eden. It was lost from Adam all the way to Moses. It was restored in sort of a limited sense with Moses and the Mosaic Covenant. And God governed the people of the world in a sense through Israel, through Moses, Joshua, judges, their kings. And the last king of Israel was Zedekiah, the last king to sit on David's throne. You guys remember part of the the outworking of the Abrahamic Covenant, the seed blessing was that there would be always, whenever there's a king, 
on the throne of David in Jerusalem, it would be a king through the line of Judah. The line of David, the second king. Remember Saul, David, and Solomon. See how that all works together? And so after Zedekiah, there's no more king sitting on the throne. But one day, there will be a king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. But he will have to be through the line of David. Hmm. Who do you think that is? Jesus. Right? Often called the son of David. Because of the line, or from the tribe of Judah, right? The lion of Judah. It's all because God has to restore his kingdom. Just as he promised. So, now, in, in kind of bringing this to a close, and how do we fit into this story? We are now sitting here in the year 2021. We are still in what's called the time of the Gentiles. See, God established Israel through, um, through Abraham, right? And, and we saw how he did that then through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob became Israel, enslaved in Egypt. And then Moses comes, right? And then after Moses, Joshua. And then there was the judges. There were kings, right? But ever since that divided kingdom, and church is important, ever since that divided kingdom was taken into exile, the northern tribes of Assyria, the southern tribes of Babylon, ever since then, and there was no more kings sitting on the throne of David, there has not been that theocratic administrator for God. That started the time of the Gentiles. When Assyria took the northern tribes into exile, then a hundred years later it was the southern tribes into Babylon. That's when what we see in Scripture called the time of the Gentiles, we see it in Daniel, we see it in Ezekiel, that started with Assyria, because Israel was no longer, they had no more kings, Israel was not ruling in the world, now you had Assyria, they were the big empire, right? And they were conquering Israel, and then the Israel's history was just a series of other pagan nations conquering them, why? Because of their disobedience. Because God, through the Mosaic Law, said, if you're going to obey me, well, there's blessings. If you're going to disobey me, there's curses. And the greatest curses, the greatest curses to be taken out of your land and exiled from your homeland in Jerusalem, the land I promised you. And this is what is described, and we can't look at all of it in detail, but this is what is described in Daniel chapter 2. Put that in your notes. Go back and read the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 2, he lists five kingdoms, five empires. If you remember from Daniel chapter 2 from Sunday school, it is the picture of a statue, a great statue of like a warrior, of a man. This is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, his dream. What does he ask Daniel to do? Daniel interpret it, right? But you know what's cool about it? Daniel doesn't interpret it. God interprets the dream for him. So we can be 100% sure that this is right. So we don't have to worry or try to figure out like who, who, who is represented in this, this, um, this great statue that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about. God tells Daniel, I'll tell you, I'll interpret it for you. So the head of gold on this statue, quickly I'll go through it, you can read it later, is Babylon. Because that was the first one, right? Because you had Assyria, then you had Babylon. So we're talking about the southern tribe, specifically Judah. God's going to bring his plan through Judah. So, the head of gold on the statue is Babylon. The chest and arms of silver, Persia. Because Persia came and overthrew Babylon. See, it's a series of kingdoms. The belly and thighs of bronze were Greece. Because Greece came and overthrew Persia. 
And then the legs of iron were Rome. Why two legs? There was the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire. See? History always proves God's right, doesn't it? (laughs) So Rome came and overthrew Greece. Because you had Babylon, then Persia took over them. Greece took over Persia. Rome took over Greece. And then, of course, who was born during that Roman conquest, that Roman occupation of Israel, was Jesus. And Rome um, conquered and occupied Jerusalem and Israel from about 63 years before Jesus to 70 A.D. when Jerusalem, by the Roman soldiers, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, 70 A.D. But yet, in this dream of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, there is a fifth empire, because that was four. Babylon, Persia, Greeks, and Rome. There is a fifth empire. It's the feet of iron and clay. Well, let me ask you this from history. What happened after 70 A.D.? In Rome, at its height, it conquers um, Jerusalem and the people of Israel. People of Israel are scattered, right? Has there been a dominant world nation or empire like Rome? There has not been. There have been great nations, but not world-dominating nations and empires like the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans. And then we know that there was the decline of Rome, right? And so now, where are we? Where is that fifth kingdom? That fifth kingdom of the feet of iron and clay. It is a kingdom that has not yet happened. See? It hasn't come to fruition yet. We can look at history and we can see even extra biblical resources. And be like, yeah, the Babylonians were real people and the Persians and the Greeks and of course the Romans. We all know that. But where is this fifth empire represented by the feet of iron and clay? It is this future kingdom. See, the Antichrist, Satan's man waiting in the wings, right? as God finishes out his plan, he will set up his own kingdom. See, Satan is not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful like God, is he? So Satan doesn't know when God's going to you know, bring the rapture of the church and start the tribulation. He doesn't know when Jesus is coming back to set up his kingdom. So Satan always has to be ready to have the, the Antichrist ready and waiting. So when he sees God starting that end-time clock, then he's going to institute his guy. Revelation calls him the Antichrist. The beast that is going to come and and rule for a short seven-year time. See, Satan wants his own kingdom. Why did he fall from heaven? He didn't want God to rule over him. He wanted to be ruler of himself, didn't he? Pride. He wanted his own kingdom. So he goes to earth and he says, hmm, God created this beautiful earth and God's setting up this kingdom through Adam and Eve. I think I'm going to take that for myself. And it worked, didn't it? Today he's still called the God of this age. But who wins in the end, God or Satan? God does. So somehow God has to bring this kingdom back and bring it all full circle so that one day it will be like it was in the Garden of Eden. Okay. Revelation 6-19 through talks about this ten-kingdom federation. Go back and read it. You know, on the statue there were ten toes. Five on each foot. Right? Not hard to understand. Most likely representing these ten nations we see in Revelation that rise up during the end times, the tribulation. 
that Satan is in charge of. See that? And somehow we would get all of them to give control over to one of those nations. It's amazing. Read about that in Revelation 6 to 19. It's all about that. What's going to happen during the tribulation time. But that is the fulfillment of God bringing about that kingdom. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, he says, God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Babylon was destroyed. Persia was destroyed. Greece was destroyed. Rome was destroyed. And one day, the Antichrist's short-lived kingdom will be destroyed by Jesus, the true king, when he returns. And you know what? We're returning with him. Can I get an amen for that one? We're going to return as the church. We would have been already raptured up. We're not designed for wrath, Scripture says. And so we're going to rule and reign with Him. So, finally, about that whole uh, dream and the, the statue. It says that one day that final kingdom will come. That last evil kingdom to exist before Jesus' kingdom comes. That will be destroyed. Listen, this is important. That will be destroyed by the stone cut without human hands. that sound familiar? The stone cut without human hands. Meaning, that final evil kingdom will not be destroyed by another earthly kingdom. Just like the other four before them. That final evil kingdom is going to be destroyed not by another human army, but by the stone cut without human hands. Who is described in all of Scripture as a rock? and a stone that is Jesus. Because Jesus comes back, and He's the one pictured in Daniel chapter 2 that that knocks the feet out from under the statue, and the whole statue statue collapses. That is what's going to happen in the future. See, Romans 13, Paul tells us that God ordains leaders, and authorities, and, and kings, and rulers, So somehow they're a part of his plan. But God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to be in power in Babylon. God allowed it to be handed over to Persia, then to Greece, and ultimately to Rome in the time of Jesus' life. But God will one day invest in a political power in a king that will rule over an earthly kingdom, subduing it to the Father's authority, doing God's perfect will culminating in God's original destiny for humankind that He started in the Garden of Eden. See, governments, leaders, authorities on every level today, they're supposed to be doing God's will. You know that? Put that in your notes. Romans 13, 1-7. Governments, it's not just this country. right? That's our context. This is throughout human history. That all the way back to Genesis 9... Right? And after the flood, God institutes human government. And He says, here's what the government's supposed to do. It's supposed to punish evil and reward good. Protect the people. No matter what form of government people, you know, devise. But ultimately, it says they are ordained by God to do His will. That's not really happening now, is it? I don't want to get into political discussion. But are politicians anywhere in this country or any country, are they perfectly doing God's will? Even if they're Christians, even if we had a Christian king, would he be doing God's will perfectly? No, because we are still sinners. One day God's will will be done, and that will be a perfect kingdom. So, 
If all of these empires I mentioned, if they were actual historical empires that fell one after the other, and Daniel, the book of Daniel, prophesies about it, and it comes true, if these were literal people, literal nations, and literal kings that literally came true, then can't we say with great certainty that the future kingdom will be literal also? Why wouldn't it be? If all of those other four kingdoms in the statue of Daniel 2 were literal kingdoms that existed at some point in human history, the fifth kingdom will also be literal. That's why we read the Bible literally. It will be a literal thousand years, and Jesus himself physically will literally be reigning literally in Jerusalem, literally on the throne of David. It will be a kingdom with a land that God promised to Abraham. It'll be a kingdom with borders that God promised for the nation of Israel. It'll be a land with citizens, and it'll be a kingdom with a king. Now we're still in that time of Gentiles. Why? Because nation Israel has rejected Jesus, did they not? And so the nation Israel is still under discipline of God, under judgment. Paul says in the future all Israel will be saved. That hasn't happened yet. So now, how are people saved? Jew and Gentile alike, Paul says. Through belief alone in Jesus Christ as a Savior for your sins. And that's for all people right now. But the coming kingdom, that coming kingdom will bring completion to God's plan for earth. It will restore what Eden should have been. See, Jesus returning is our hope. Yes, it's the rapture when the church is captured up, but seven years later when He actually comes back to earth to set up His kingdom, we get excited about that too because we're going to rule and reign with Him. Because we're the church, we're His bride. And where the groom goes, the bride goes. I want to read to you. There's, there, I'm going to read one last scripture to you. Um, this is so beautiful. and um, There's many scriptures I wanted to read, but I'm just going to read this um, this one to you this is um isaiah 11 6 to 9 you can skip to that one isaiah 11 6 to 9 this is a description i'm gonna leave you with this church this is a description of the future kingdom tell me if after i read it you're not excited to be a part of this kingdom isaiah 11 6 through 9 it's a prophecy of this final coming kingdom the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That doesn't describe life now, does it? Because this is not the kingdom. Not as God describes it. But one day, see that relationship, that beautiful, perfect relationship in the garden, not only between God and, and Adam and Eve and humans, but how about between humans and animals? It was in perfect harmony. You ever think about that? I mean, Adam named all those animals. They were in perfect harmony. 
They weren't even eating meat back then. That wasn't until after the flood. See, there's still sin and it's going to come back one day. God's going to restore that. He makes all things new, doesn't he? And so that's why this describes that future kingdom when you're going to have the lion and the lamb laying down next to each other and a kid can play near the, the big pit of snakes. Because it won't even be a thought in a parent's mind that there would be any issue. Because there will be complete harmony in all of God's creation. What do we have to look forward to in the kingdom? Perfect justice. These are All these scriptures lead to this. Perfect justice. Worldwide peace. Universal knowledge of the Lord. Renovated earth. Curse of sin is greatly diminished. There'll be great prosperity on the earth and even prayers will be immediately answered. So here we are today, still in the time of the Gentiles, but we are the church made up of believers everywhere today. You know, all the prophecies about Jesus, about His first coming, they were all fulfilled literally. Hundreds of prophecies about the coming Messiah were fulfilled literally. He was born in Bethlehem. That was prophesied. He was born of a virgin. That was prophesied. His hands and feet were pierced. That was prophecy. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man. That was prophecy. On and on we could go. If all of those prophecies, church, about the first coming, the first advent of Jesus, if they were all fulfilled literally in Jesus then don't you think that all the prophecies about Jesus second coming will be fulfilled literally as well why is that important it gives us hope for today and for tomorrow because we can trust in a God like that can't we we can trust in a God who is a promise keeper and gives us his word that tells us his promises Because the king will return to set up his kingdom. He is the rightful king. He is our savior. He is our Lord. He is our coming king. We pray. Father, thank you for being our savior, for being our Lord, for being our future coming king. We look forward to that day. Until then, Lord, may we be people of hope that represent you well with the Holy Spirit within us, standing firm on Your Word, the truth that brings hope to this world without hope. God, may we live out the Gospel. May we proclaim the Gospel with our words. And Father, may we celebrate the anticipated return of the King for His long-awaited return. 